Welcome to episode 125 of the Martin Bailey Photography Podcast. As many of you already know, for the last week in January 2008, I held the first MBP workshop in Hokkaido and was joined by five fine gentlemen from four countries, uh, namely the, uh, uh, let's see, the US, we had um, one guy from Australia, one from Canada and one from Norway. Um, well, you'll probably get to know a little bit more about these guys from the forums and also for over the next uh, few episodes, but uh, basically from today, probably for three weeks, possibly four, uh, we're going to take a look at the, the the trip that we made and sort of trace our steps um, as I show you a bunch of images that I took during the uh, four and a half days that we were on the road. So let's just jump right into it. So I guess I need to say before we go any further that I'm going to try to uh, start calling this a, a photography tour rather than a workshop uh, during these episodes. Although I plan to do a number of structured exercises and discussion sessions, I packed the week so full of amazing locations that we really had very little time for discussion. My plan was to do like, um, you know, to prime the participants for the location on the bus while heading out. Um, or the previous night, and this I believe that I did and that it helped. But once we were actually shooting, I, I found it difficult to, well, it would have broken my heart to have had to have stopped shooting if I was them. So basically what I was doing was walking around and just asking if everyone was okay, sort of taking a look at what they were doing, um, maybe suggesting a few tips as they shot, but really not being able to sort of round the group up for a discussion um, in the middle of everything that was going on. And I had kind of expected this to be ha to happen, to be honest, um, but um, not quite to the degree that it did. So uh, I think we can probably think of this more uh, uh, as a, a photography tour than a workshop, um, especially for this first one that we did. Um, I did, of course, achieve a few things that I wanted to. I got um, a number of the guys uh, shooting pretty comfortably in manual mode within the first few days. And I'll explain why this was necessary as we worked through uh, the first uh, few images. Uh, as it's, it's not been covered for a while, and I, I've noticed uh, some talk about this in the forum lately as well. So we'll go into a bit of detail about that today. Um, that will really, I guess, uh, give you an idea of, of the main um, point of the first day, which was to just really get used to shooting in manual and the reasons for why it's necessary. Uh, there was a lot of discussion about this on the bus, and it, I think it went well. So let's jump into that uh, as, we, as we progress. So also, before we go on, I'd like to say a huge thank you to a guy named Yoshiaki Kobayashi. I've mentioned... Uh, Yoshiaki a number of times before. Um, I usually call him Kobayashi Sensei. And I know that many of you that um, have probably seen Karate Kid or have uh, even done a little bit of karate yourself or judo and stuff. Uh, in Japan, people call um, the teacher 
Um, it's more than a teacher, really, but um, they call they call them sensei. So I often just call him Kobayashi Sensei, and he's one of the top photographers here in Japan. And I just wanted to really say that this tour uh, would not have been possible without his help. Firstly, it's um, from visiting Hokkaido and Kobayashi Sensei's photography tours a number of times that allowed me to learn where the locations that we'd shoot over the week actually were. I've visited myself alone a number of times um, and in the summer with my better half as well. Um, and, you know, I do know the area. Um, I'm comfortable that I know the area very well. Um, and But really, you know, I'd the winter tours especially, I'd learned so much from Kobayashi Sensei, so I really just wanted to, to say a huge thanks there. Also, it was at the same location that we shot the first um, six images or so to, that we'll look at today, where Kobayashi Sensei got me using the uh, the manual mode on my camera for the first time a number of years ago. Until then, I'd been scared of it, as most uh, people are to begin with. And to some degree, um, you know, I think that's founded. It's, it, it's a big thing to jump into manual mode, especially when most of us uh, spend so much time uh, comfortable in either the P mode or or in one of the you know aperture priority or shutter priority mode, um, but it was a big thing for me as well to jump to make that jump a few years ago. Um, I forget how long ago it was, maybe maybe four years ago now, um, when I first went to Hokkaido with Kobayashi Sensei. Anyway, um, the uh, it, it was at that time that I'd really sort of made the jump. I'd never really understood until that point, why I even needed to go to manual mode. And I think that this was um, this was a big part of the, the conversation that we had with the guys as we headed out to the um, Akan Crane International Crane Centre, which, which is where we'll uh, look at the first photos from. Uh, but, uh, you know, this really was one of the most radical changes in my photography uh, over the years, and I've, I've since been really very grateful for this too. Uh, finally, uh, Kobayashi Sensei had also, he'd, he'd not only given me the advice, uh, some advice by mail over the last week or so of my planning, but he also came out to meet us on the first day and even helped helped get us out of a fix um, towards the end of the day uh, that uh, we'll go into a little bit more later. For now though, just a, a huge thank you to Yoshiaki Kobayashi, Kobayashi Sensei for all of your help and it was great to see you again. I know that you listen uh, to these podcasts as well, so just a, a huge thank you. So after arriving at the Kushiro airport at 9.30am, finding our bus driver, Ogasawara-san, uh, we started to make our way over to the first location as, of the day, as I said, uh, which was the Akan International Crane Centre. We were going to stay here until mid-afternoon and just shoot away. As I anticipated, the guys were sort of excited with the first uh, sight of a field full of red crown cranes. The numbers are increasing so much so that it's actually become pretty difficult to get a clean shot of just one or two of the birds, um, which is a bit of a shame, but obviously it's great news for the cranes. You know, the more the, the more the, the numbers, the the more safer they're going to be for the future. There must have been a good couple of hundred of cranes on the field in front of the trench at the edge um, of that field, 
made especially for photographers to set up their gear. I spent my first hour sort of wandering among, among the guys, uh, seeing if they had any questions and helping out as necessary. As they all got settled down uh, to shooting, though, and, you know, I, I, you know, a few actually broke away uh, into the next field um, where you're allowed to go over there in front of the build, the other building at the site. Um, everyone really was just uh, shooting away for a number of hours. Um, happy that everyone else was happy, I got uh, my two cameras out and set up my uh, 600mm f4 on a tripod and I also got the 300mm 2.8 lens uh, out with uh, the other one was the 70 to 200 um, f2.8 and I just sort of dropped that in the stone bag between my tripod legs uh, for quick access. I was switching the bodies between the 600mm and the uh, the other two lenses basically just sort of looking at the scenes and the sort of things that were going to be happening trying to give myself uh, the most pixels really for and the frame rate as well uh, for the, su the subject that uh, I was going to be shooting at any one time. Three minutes uh, before noon I shot the first image that I want to look at today which is number 1682. This was shot with the 5D on the 600mm f4 and uh, it's a similar shot to that that I made in December 2006 during my, my last visit. But this time I have a second crane nicely out of focus in the back, background there. And I actually like the first uh, preening shot better but I, I just thought that this one worked well as well. Um, and let's use this to start to explain the need for manual mode. So you'll notice with this shot that the majority of the frame is filled with bright white with just a, a few patches of red and black. Now any of you that have studied exposure compensation and probably all of you will know that the the camera meter um, does not uh, like predominantly white or bright coloured scenes or predominantly black or very dark coloured scenes the meter will always try to darken a light scene to make it a mid-grey or brighten a dark scene uh, again to make it a mid-grey. If you know that you will always shoot under the same conditions like you know if I knew that my subject was always going to be white always have a white background and no, not change then going to aperture priority mode and using exposure compensation will work fine. The problem with doing this when shooting wildlife though is that birds or animals move around. As we'll see shortly these cranes and other birds visiting the area uh, can in a moment move from a pure white background to a dark background which is the woods in the distance and also above that the, the mid-tone sort of blue sky. As soon as they move to other backgrounds if you were simply using aperture priority mode with exposure compensation then your camera would try to brighten the image up uh, because it now sees a lot of dark background and you would gr really just grossly over overexpose the white birds. Remember that if this is, you know, if, it's, if there's ever a choice between a badly exposed environment and a badly exposed main subject, of course we should always go for the getting the main subject correctly exposed. I personally don't 
feel that, that it's necessary to see all of the details in shadows of trees and things. And, you know, I'm, I'm being a little bit cynical here, but I, I, I think that you'll all agree that, you know, we just should always try to expose for the main subject. Um, and in this situation, it's the fine details of the feathers on these cranes. To get my exposure um, of the bright snow, uh, for the, for, to set this in manual mode, I simply select the aperture that I want to shoot at and that, that, I, that matches my artistic aims and then fill the frame with snow and adjust the shutter speed while watching the carrot move up and down or right and left on the camera's meter scale in the viewfinder. In previous podcasts, I think I've always said that I set my exposure to one and two thirds above zero or plus exposure compensation um, if you're in aperture priority, but watching that carrot plus one and two thirds. But I need to update this. For years, I've been using centre-weighted metering, which actually stops the camera from analysing the scene to some extent, to a large extent, actually. Now, though, I've switched to the multi-segment evaluative metering. This does a lot more thinking than centre-weighted metering, and as the metering systems have probably gotten better since um, I, well, I, from even from the 5D and the 20D and things like that, all of these cameras were already getting a lot better than the older bodies. But I, you know, just for for years, I'd been so used to using the centre-weighted uh, metering and, and steering clearer of evaluative metering, it really just became a habit for me. But I thought that, you know, with, with my latest camera having a few more years of R&D, and really just me being a little bit behind on this, I thought I'd give evaluative metering a try. Well, this means that when I started to set up in my usual way, I found that one and two thirds over was way too much. You, you need to really do this yourself too, so I'll go into detail, but uh, basically as I was setting up the exposure and shooting test shots, and then look, looking at the histogram, I could see that I was hitting the right shoulder showing... Uh, that there were parts of the shot that were overexposed. And this was confirmed by lots of areas of flashing black in the preview image too. So I started to work down, to, you know, decreasing the exposure and found that the clipping, uh, which is the word used for the histogram hitting the right shoulder, uh, stopped just after two thirds over zero. So not one and two thirds, but just two thirds over zero. And Remember that the zero is what the camera thought the exposure should be in evaluative mode. So it you know, really is, it's understanding the scene a lot more than it used to do um, and definitely a lot more than it, than it lets on when you're using centre-weighted. Anyway, um, that became the setting for the day, uh, plus two-thirds of a stop. And to ensure that the snow and the white, you know, the white cranes were exposed correctly without worrying about the, the a change in brightness as uh, you know as I moved around and the background changed from white snow to dark trees or a blue sky I wouldn't have to worry about the exposure at all so to quickly recap now that I'm using eva eva evaluative metering as most of you will be I'm sure uh, to meter for a very bright white scene, go to manual mode, select the aperture that you want for your subject 
Then fill the frame with snow and just adjust the shutter speed while watching the carrot move up and down or left or right um, on your exposure scale in your camera's viewfinder until it's two-thirds above zero. You can, of course, go to spot metering mode and just um, put the center of your viewfinder on the white object and set the exposure in the same way. But like center-weighted, uh, this stops your camera from thinking um, to a degree and it just gives you the reading. So you'll, uh, you'll probably have to compensate a little more. Remember though, whichever way you choose, the histogram is your friend. As I've said before, in the digital age, most of the time you'll want to expose for the highlights. So just do a few test shots at the offset and check the histogram and make sure that the right side of the histogram is close to but not touching the right shoulder. Also note that if the light changes, light, like uh, you know, on a clear day with some clouds, you'll need to get a second reading for when the clouds have rolled in and switch between the two, um, you know, the direct sun setting and the cloudy time setting um, exposures as you as the conditions change. This is the only real pain with working in manual mode, but um, it's not a not a big deal and you can see the change easily and, and make your corrections and it usually is just a case of remembering two settings and just switching between them during the day. Anyway, sorry for those of you that have heard that before uh, or those of you that knew about it anyway but I, I know that there are some people that will benefit from a fresh explanation of that so I thought I'd put it in. In the next shot, image number 1684, we can see nine whooper swans, uh, or whooper swans, W-H-O-O-P-E-R, um, that were, they basically, they'd been sharing part of the field with the cranes for a few hours and took flight um, at a time when I was able to capture them. You'll notice if you check the EXIF data uh, for this and the last shot that I shot both of these with an aperture of f5.6 for one one two hundred no one 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 thousand and two hundred and fiftieth of a second uh, with ISO one hundred. Without a doubt, though, had I been using aperture priority with exposure compensation. The swans would have been blown out in this shot. Instead, they're a beautiful bright white looking a little like a washing powder commercial. So that's the blue sky example. Uh, let's, to complete the example, look at image number 1685, in which we can see a single red crowned crane flying against a dark background, which is the woods that I mentioned earlier. By no means a special shot, but I'm sure you can appreciate my point about the you know shooting manual mode when you see that this shot too was also shot with the same settings f five point six for one one thousand two hundred and fiftieth of a second uh, again with uh, ISO one hundred that dark background would have definitely blown the crane out and you know if I'd been using aperture priority. Uh, but here we can see all of the details in the white feathers as well as plenty of texture in the black feathers and much of the background is underexposed but who cares I'm shooting the crane not the woods anyway having spent so much time going through the the reasons behind the benefits of shooting in manual mode let's shifty through a bunch of photos and try to make some headroom Next, let's take a look at image number 1687. 
I'd actually adjusted the exposure now, uh, shooting at 1 1,000th of a second, still at f5.6 with ISO 100. Uh, but basically the light had slowly started to change, so I had to make some adjustments. This is a bit of a documentary shot, but I nailed one of the uh, white-tailed eagles that comes in to the centre at 2pm uh, when they feed the cranes live fish. The eagles make great spectacles as they swoop down and fight with the cranes for the fish. There are also sometimes stellar sea eagles that uh, join in the raucous, and one had appeared on this day but had kept his distance. There were also some juvenile stellar eagles that look very similar to white-tailed eagles, um, but they, they have like a dappled brown, t brown and white tail. Um, you know, that's before they get their, their full colour, which is basically just uh, a dark black and white. Um, anyway, I'd, I just thought I'd sort of share this image with you too and show you how beautiful these uh, the white-tailed eagles are as well. In shot number one, uh, 1688, we can see one of the white-tailed eagles navigating a low flight through the cranes, many of which um, had turned to sort of keep their eye on the eagle as he makes his way through their turf. Andrew, one of the participants, made a comment about this image in the gallery, uh, so I thought I'd go into a little bit of detail on how I focused for this shot. Firstly, I should say that I, I set the custom function on my camera, to on the camera body, to toggle between one shot and AI servo focusing when I push the AF stop button on my super telephoto lenses. This is the small black, like rubbery button that um, you, you can find. Is it there are a few of them uh, on a band around, the, you know, the front of near the front of the lens? Uh, in my uh, lens arsenal, this uh, this really it's just two. It's the three hundred f two point eight and the six hundred millimeter f four that has this button. Um, but you know, I, I know that there's a, a number of you that will also have a lens that has the button, uh, one of the very long lenses or the DO, the, the DO, the 400mm DO um, lens also has them. Um, and I know that there's a number of you uh, in the, the MBP community that are using these lenses, so I thought I'd sort of add this as well. Um, basically though, what this does is um, when you hold the button down, um, if you're in AI servo mode, it switches you to one shot. Uh, or if you're in one-shot mode, it switches you to AI servo. Um, that's when you've made the the change. The you have to turn this on um, the uh, you know in the custom functions on the camera body. Uh, but that's one of the first things that I I do when I get a new camera. Um, basically, though, uh, what I was actually doing here, I was while I was panning around with the eagle in the sky with just against the blue sky, I was pushing the button, um, toggling into AI servo mode. And um, then, you know, once once the bird sort of swoops down, there's a good chance that the focus will be stolen by the cranes as I move through the group here. Although I have noticed that the, the 1DS is a lot better at keeping the focus on the, the moving subject that you, uh, you know, that you were panning with, um, even if you get things come into the foreground or, or a, a pretty contrasty background, a lot better than the 1D. Uh, Mark II that I rented a few years ago for the 2006 trip. 
Um, anyway, that aside, there's a, there's a chance that uh, things, you know, that these the cranes being f- closer in the foreground are going to steal the the focus. So basically, as I moved down into that, I um, released my finger from the AF stop button, and that automatically toggles me back to one stop, uh, one shot focusing to prevent uh, any unwanted searching and allowed me to just really lock focus easily as I panned along with the eagle, um, getting him just perfectly sharp. Now, there's something else that I got some of the guys on during the workshop, and this is actually something that's very new to me too, and it was introduced to me um, by Holly Sisson, um, one of the, you know, Holly's one of the major contributors in the MBP uh, community and also a great portrait photographer. Many of you will remember Holly from the second uh, roundtable that we did towards the end of last year. And, you know, even if you don't, uh, even if you don't get involved in, in our online community, a lot of you will remember. Anyway, during some of the discussion about our new one series cameras last year, um, Holly had got me onto using the AF button on the the back of the body on the 1DS and removing that functionality from the shutter button with the again with the custom functions. Um basically what this means is now when I press the camera's shutter button no focusing is done by the camera regardless of uh, which shooting mode I'm in one shot or AI servo um unless I actually push the AF button on the back of the camera, no focusing is done. If you aren't familiar with this focusing style, it probably won't uh, be easy to get your head around this, but basically what this allows you to do is to simply take your finger off the button on the back of the camera, the AF button, um, at any time, and essentially be thrown back into manual focus mode, because even though the camera lens is is in AF mode, no focusing is done at all. I have to say that this took a lot of getting used to, and to be honest, I wanted to give up after my first afternoon out shooting like this. However, the benefits did seem very huge, you know, I, and I wanted to switch to this style of shooting, having discussed it in depth with Holly, and I just decided that I was going to keep, keep at it. Um, I made a lot of mistakes to begin with, I'd be shooting away. Um, the first the first day was um, was really just an education. But even in um, the shoots, if you remember the the day that I shot the swans flying over the pampas grass in the morning light um, towards the end of December, that day at the uh, Kotoku um, no, it's not Numa. That's Japanese. Um, the the pond or whatever um, that. Uh, that shoot, I made a lot of mistakes there, and you know, some were because I was trying to use AI servo, which doesn't give you any feedback as to which focus point you're using. So I was actually focusing on the more contrasty um, ripples on the water in front of swans, um, but that was that was a different thing, really. And I've I've got around that now. Um, basically, what I've done is I've I've pretty much gone back to using one one shot for a lot of the work that I'm doing when there's any doubt that I'm going to be getting the eyes sharp. You know, I'm actually using the focus point over the eyes. Um, I'm also going back to the center focus point a lot, uh, which is something that I tend to do. Um, But 
basically, you know, that, that's a different subject. If we need to, we can go into that a little bit more later. Um, but the, re the main reason that I was getting mistakes was because I was forgetting that you have to press this button on the back of the camera. So I'm obviously, as for years, I've been using just the, the focus attached to the shutter button. When you, when you go to take the shot, the, the focus snaps in. Um, and that just doesn't happen. So when it's close, it's easy to forget about it. You know, you, I, I was sort of tracking with, panning with birds and things and, all of a sudden I'd, I'd realized that they were going out of focus and I'd think, oh no, and you know, what basically what I'd done is forgotten to hit the, the AF button on the back of the camera. So a lot of mistakes to, to learn with, but as they say, you know, you learn by your mistakes and each one, each chance for a possible shot missed really sort of hammered it into me how important it was for me to get my finger on that AF button. And, you know, it, it took a little bit of getting used to it. It took a lot of getting used to. Um, and even now having shot like this for almost two months, it's still not 100% natural to me. But even after that first afternoon, I simply can't go back. It's, it was, I felt sort of tainted. I'd, I'd moved myself away from my original style of, of shooting, the, the style that I'd known for, for years. And in, in one afternoon, I just felt that I couldn't go back. So, you know, really, um, it's just it's something new that I'm getting into, um, but you know I just thought I'd share it with you, with you now. I might go into this in more detail um, as necessary in a future podcast. Uh, to tell you the truth, though, about the shot of the eagle flying through the cranes that's up right now, um, I'd actually during that final pass simply released my finger from the AF button altogether. So there, even with going having gone back to one shot there was absolutely no worry about the camera's focus jumping around without me wanting it to because I wasn't focusing even though I'd obviously got my finger on the shutter button snapping away. Anyway, um, I'm, not, I'm not doing a very good job of, uh, of uh, moving quickly through the rest of the shots here, am I? Uh, so I just wanted to thank Holly actually before moving on uh, for getting me onto this. Um, I also want to apologize to Evan, another of the participants of the tour, as I got him onto this at the end of the second day, and then on the morning of the third day, on the side of a freezing cold mountain at dawn, Evan had thought that one of his lenses had frozen up to the point that it was no longer auto-focusing. Um, really though, what, it, what was happening was, um, we'd switched Evan's camera to the, you know, to use the back AF button, not the shutter button, to focus, and forgotten about that, and I didn't click. And then, you know, basically, I, you know, what I did say when I started talking about this, um, when we were moving to the last, um, you know, the the location where we we worked on this a little bit, um, I did say that uh, people should bear this in mind uh, simply for later and not try it during the the tour because there was a good chance that they'd lose shots because of that. Uh, so I don't feel 100% responsible, a little bit exempt here, but um, it could have been avoided if I'd have been a little bit more attentive as well. Um, so I, I do feel a little bit bad about that. Uh, but all was not uh, was not lost, and you know I think it's another one of the, uh, the things that the, the participants will take away from them. Um, so that one was really courtesy of Holly Sisson. So thanks again to Holly for getting me onto that. Um, so anyway, let's. I'm not going to uh, keep harping on about all of this stuff, or we'll never get through this podcast. 
Let's take a look at image number 1690 now. Here is some great confirmation of how fearless the cranes are. They're actually they're, the the red crown crane is the largest of the of the crane species. They're I think they're like 150 160 uh, centimeters tall, and they're about 25 pounds in weight as well. So, you know they're they're not a um, not a small bird by any means. And one of the young cranes we can tell that by the brown head um, and the lack of the the crest there. Um, Basically, he'd lost his temper with the eagle um, and decided that he was going to give him a good old stomp. And I have to admit um, that in the excitement of the moment, this was one of those times when I fumbled the shot to a degree. I, I tried to keep calm. I've even preached about this in the, in the podcast. Um, but this one, I, you know, I saw the, the crane stomp and I got a couple of shots of the actual, uh, you know, the, the leg going in there and um, and the obvious discomfort of the the, the white-tailed eagle um, before this shot that we're looking at now. But as I tried to figure out what was going on and 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 react, I simply sort of shook the lens around a little bit, and the first two images were blurred. Um, one, I think, the very first was good, and then as I tried to think about how to recompose, the the second two were blurred, and then this was the fourth of a series. Um, but basically, you know, this this one's tack sharp, and I'm happy about it. But uh, as you can see, I didn't have fast enough reflexes uh, or thinking uh, to recompose the shot to get the entire crane in. I'm not sure if it's necessary, but I would like to have had it there and and been able to to sort of think about it. But what I actually um, I did, I I really didn't have a chance to recompose at all after my initial sort of flitter around, and. I shot the eagle um, really just above center in the original shot. And what that means is that I, I have a lot of wasted space to the right and the bottom in the original image, which I've cropped away. And funnily enough, uh, without paying attention to this uh, when I was cropping, I actually cropped to, um, to leave me, what was it, 12.8 megapixels which is almost exactly the same as the 5D images without any cropping. So this means, of course, that the, the investment in the 1DS has allowed me to salvage a really decent-sized image still, even after some pretty hefty cropping, which I'm, I'm happy about. For this shot, too, I was, I was actually... I wanted, I'd lowered the shutter speed again um, to uh, 1 800th of a second um, at still an aperture of f5.6 with ISO 100. There are a number of other shots from the Akan International um, Crane Center in my gallery at martinbaileyphotography.com, but we won't look at all of them. I'll put a link into the show notes that will display all 50 of the shots that I've uploaded from the trip if you're interested in taking a look. At around 3 p.m. though, we decided to move to a different location to shoot the cranes as they fly in flocks to roost. This is when the first mishap of the week occurred. I'd heard of this place and I'd actually, um, you know, I'd looked it up on a map and everything, but I'd not actually visited myself. And th this and the, the other location uh, later in the week where we'd shoot owls, um, were the only two locations during the week that I'd not personally visited. Um, 
I did know, as I said, where, where how to find it from the map and in, also in relation to the Ito Crane Sanctuary, which um, we would also visit. Um, it was really literally just around the corner, but I made the mistake of leaving this totally to the bus driver to get us there. I checked that he knew where it was and he said that he thought he did know, but when we arrived at the place that he dropped us off, it seemed all wrong and I'd... I'd basically, I'd been talking with the other participants to that point. Um, and so I'd not been checking how we got there. Um, anyway, you know, I was I was sure it was wrong. And I asked the driver to check and he got new directions from his company. Um, you know, we were at the wrong place. We set off again, uh, having lost maybe 10 minutes or getting off the bus and everything. Um, still, though, we couldn't find the the place that we were actually trying to get to. And I'd lost my bearings because I'd not really looked where we were. And I had to resort to calling my friend again, Yoshiaki Kobayashi, and um, and asking, you know, if he knew where, you know, how to get there. He'd told me earlier in the day that he was going to be heading for the same location for the sunset crane shots. I really didn't want to rely on him, but, you know, we were running out of daylight and getting these guys to the location was top priority. Anyway, not only did Komesh Sensei help us with directions, but his good lady wife came out um, to an easy-to-find point in the road with the young baby sort of strung around her neck. And it really just, you know, it, she, she helped us to, to find the location um, without any further problems. So I really can't say how grateful I am to Komesh Sensei and his wife for all of their help on the first day. Um, as well as all of the other stuff that I mentioned at the beginning of the podcast. So we did get there, and we got there in time to sh to get a few shots of the cranes. I was not uh, really able to capitalise on one of the larger flock shots. It just really didn't do anything for me uh, when I took a look when I got home. But let's take a look at one of the shots that I did upload, which is number 1691. Uh, and in here we can see four cranes that headed across the sky. Um, really, as the, as the sun had dropped down below the tree line, and probably at this by this time below the skyline. Here I was basically trying to get um, an almost silhouette, but you know, with some colour in the sky. Uh, to achieve this, I selected a shutter speed of 1 160th of a second, and... To get more depth of field, to get the trees in focus uh, to a certain extent too, I used an aperture of f8. I selected ISO 400 to give me a fast enough shutter speed to pan with the uh, the 300mm f2.8 without losing too many shots due to camera shake. Um, but I'd obviously, I'd got IS turned on in mode 2 for panning, so... You know, I didn't need to worry too much about that, and this was plenty, uh, plenty of a shot. Uh, you know, the um, the the shutter speed was was plenty. Um, this shot uh, is one where uh, it came together okay, um, but there are you know there are a number of um, blurred shots that I got either either side of this in the series. Um, so you know, I was still pushing it a little bit. This helps to enforce the advice of shooting in bursts when taking chances with shutter speeds and the hand-holding. Um, it really just increases your chances of capturing something that you can use. 
As the light died though, I switched my tactics to get some slower panning shots and I attached the the 1.4 extender to the 300mm to give me a focal length of 420 and selected 1 30th of a second at f5.6 for one, you know, that 1 30th of a second really would might, it would uh, give me enough uh, movement in the crane's wings if I caught the timing just right and also would allow the background to blur to some um, extent to emphasize the panning action. Unfortunately, in shot number 1692, the crane's wings were almost totally stationary. I did like the blurred trees in the background though, so I, I got a, you know, a reasonable shot here. I was hoping for um, you know, some, some nice swooping movement in the wings, but you know, it wasn't to be on this occasion. I did get another shot shortly after this with some really nice movement in the wings, but the overall composition had been lost as I panned through the shot, so I didn't upload it to my gallery. Anyway, with this um, with this shot ended, you know, the the first very long day. We went over to the hotel where we were going to spend our first night. The hotel uh, was is actually owned by and run by another professional photographer, Masahiro Wada, who uh, spends all of his time uh, when not running the hotel out uh, photographing the wildlife in the area and after everyone had enjoyed a nice sort of communal bath in the hotel's outside stone tub which is called a rotenburo uh, we uh, we all ate dinner together and for a short time I, I primed the guys on what we would photograph the following morning um, and then after dinner, we, we all went up to Wadasan's den where, uh, well, not all of us, a number of us went up to Wadasan's den where he, uh, he showed some of the guys uh, a preview of what we might uh, have in store for us the following morning if the temperature dropped below minus 15 degrees Celsius. So uh, for those of you that uh, listened to podcast 71 uh, to 74 when I visited this area, for four days at the end of 2006, you'll probably remember that I'd been uh, I'd been hoping for mist on the river that you overlook um, from the it's the, there's a bridge called the Ottawa Bridge. Um, I've mentioned this before too. Ottawa basically means the sound of wings, which is really apt. Um, but they actually built a a separate footbridge at the side of the bridge. Um, I think it was maybe 15 years or so ago now, um, where Basically, it's it's just been built specially for photographers to go and stand on the bridge and photograph the cranes in the morning. Um, uh, so, you know, it's really good that they're, they're doing this this amount of work in the area for us photographers. Uh, obviously, it, it brings in a lot of uh, tourist dollars as well, or yen, I should say. Um, so you can understand why they do this, but still, I, it's, I appreciate the, the efforts that the town's made. So basically, though, um, you know, we we were hoping for mist again. Um, we'd seen a bunch of a bunch of shots from Wadasan's collection. Some of them he'd shot the day before we got there, and you know, basically, we'd heard you know that there had been mist, uh, a lot of mist recently. Um, I when I was there in two thousand six, I'd spent I'd seen some some really nice shots from people uh, that were still in the hotel um, that they'd shot the day before I got there. Um, but of the four days that I got up bright and early and 
well not even bright, no, dark and early, and went over to the bridge, uh, I didn't get the mist any of the days. Um, I obviously came away with another great reason to go back, um, but, uh, you know, again, like I say, we'd heard from Wadasan that there'd been a lot of great uh, mist on on the, you know, on the river for the, the day before we got there, but the day that we arrived, um, there'd been no mist, and my heart kind of sunk at the thought that uh, our one day, you know, not four this time, um, but the one day that we would visit the location, uh, there might not be any mist, so... I was, you know, my heart kind of sunk on hearing that there'd been none on the day that we arrived, uh, despite there being a load for, you know, for many days up to that point. Anyway, listen to next week's podcast, uh, or you can maybe take a sneak preview into my own uploaded images uh, to see how we fared on the second day. So that's it for this week. I hope you enjoyed joining us for the first day. We'll continue the trip next week. There's not really any um, any housekeeping as such for this week, so I thought that I'd take a couple of minutes to thank all of those that have contacted me recently with thanks and encouragement for the podcast. I always really do appreciate your kind words and your feedback. I would also like to ask, uh, as I haven't said this for a while, um, I get a little bit cheeky every so often, uh, but if you have any friends or family, colleagues that are interested in photography and you haven't already told them about this podcast, please take a moment to spread the word. Maybe even sort of drop a link uh, into this, you know, without make, making this spam. Uh, if you frequent any other forums or sites and things that you think people might be interested in, you know, just give us a mention and um, maybe drop a link in there and we'll, we'll see if we can attract um, a few more listeners. It really helps when trying to find a sponsor for the podcast if I can show some healthy listener figures. And although they do continue to grow steadily, um, it would be great if we get, could get an influx of new listeners around now as I start to, um, you know, to build relationships with uh, with some companies to get uh, some some more permanent sponsors not just for the listener numbers though of course it's always great to welcome on board new listeners and see new faces and get uh, new perspectives and opinions on issues uh, when we're in the forum at uh, martinbailyphotography.com it really does continue to just be a great place to hang out and talk about uh, photography and art and all things uh, related to our wonderful you know, pastime, hobby, profession, whatever angle you're coming at this from. Uh, it just really is great. So thanks again uh, to everyone that is involved. And uh, you know, if we can do a little bit of a push uh, to, to get anyone else that might be interested on board, then uh, please do drop them a line and tell them about our great community and podcast. So with that, all that remains to be said is thanks for listening once again. And you have a great week, whatever you're doing. Bye-bye. Photocastnetwork.com Your photography resource in the potosphere. Photocastnetwork.com